Welcome back to Clinician's Brief, the podcast, the conversations behind the content. I'm your host, registered veterinary technician, Becky Mosser, and today's conversation is one I've been looking forward to for quite some time. We're going to be talking to Dr. Lucian Vallone, a veterinary ophthalmologist out at Texas A&M University, about his recent article published in the August 2019 Clinician's Brief on smartphone technology in clinical ophthalmology. Welcome, Dr. Vallone. Thank you so much for being here. Oh, thanks so much for the invite to talk about the topic. I'm really excited about this. When I when I saw this topic, I thought this would be a great one to cover on the podcast because I think there's a lot of conversation to have behind the content. And that's the very idea of this podcast is when I read these articles, what questions do I walk away with in, in additional knowledge? And we're talking about using smartphone technology in clinical ophthalmology. And that is definitely something I think there's going to be a lot of conversations and questions to have. But before that, I'd like to just get a little bit more of an idea about your background. I know you're out at Texas A&M right now. Tell me kind of how you got there and, and a little bit about your background. So yeah, I my title at Texas A&M is a clinical assistant professor of comparative ophthalmology. I have been at Texas A&M, which is in College Station, Texas, since late 2015, and I started working there directly after my residency training, which was at Cornell University, uh, which was after my internship, also at Cornell, and uh, that school was you know, a ways back at Mississippi State. I like the topic a lot because when you go through your own education in an ophthalmology residency for like what is characteristic of a specific disease, like a disease as common as dry eye, we look at things with a slit lamp, uh, a handheld microscope that gives us somewhere between 10 and 16x magnification. It gives us this great perception of depth within the eye. And then we translate that to a conversation with the owner or a lecture to students saying that, you know, the disease is characterized by, you know, these microscopic aspects. But, you know, in practice, how does a client convey that to a veterinarian? So what are they seeing? How do we connect that gap between the microscopic disease and what they're seeing macroscopically? And same thing for a lecture with a student or just a conversation with a student. How can we bridge the gap to illustrate the disease so that we can actually train effectively. And before smartphones came out, it was, I I really don't think that there was a closing of that gap. I think that veterinary ophthalmologists were uh, these amateur uh, photographers using DSLR cameras, these super expensive high resolution cameras that um, can project a very magnified crisp image into a lecture or textbook or a journal. But you know, when it comes to training a student to, or a veterinarian in a CE event, uh, how to find these pathologies on their own, it's, it's difficult. The tools weren't really there. But now we've got, you know, everyone has this essentially a medical device in their smartphone in their pocket at all times. It's almost ubiquitous that it almost seems like it's something that can be incorporated into veterinary medical training. And it helps us all communicate. Um, so it's not there yet, but if you look on the human side, it's exploding. So, you know, from uh, the earliest articles in roughly 2005 to now, it's just like it's exponentially increasing in attention uh, for everything that the smartphone can do for, for ophthalmology. So it's, it's a really exciting topic to talk about because it makes uh, my job fun. 
And that's exactly it, right? It's fun and it's accessible. And so that's kind of what makes it a no-brainer, I think, because like you said, it's ubiquitous. Pretty much everyone is walking around with at least one, right? If yeah. not multiple smartphones nowadays. That's a good point. And, you know, that's why I just kind of felt like this article is sort of on the forefront of what we enjoy most in our industry, which is ease of diagnostics and technology advancements, as well as accessibility, right? So the smartphone has just sort of become one of those advanced, affordable tools that we have. I mean, you've got plums, you've got calculators, converters, and and you've got the camera on there. And, And with this particular article, you talk about using the smartphone specifically, you know, as an ophthalmologic diagnostic tool. How did you kind of come upon using your phone and start to hone your skills in diagnostic imaging with the camera? How did you come into this? Yeah, so just word of mouth, to be honest with you. Um, The annual conference of veterinary ophthalmologists is in the fall each year. And a few years ago, someone, I think it was a French group, presented uh, the DI, an, an FDA approved adapter for direct fundoscopy. And they published these images and an ophthalmologist from uh, Missouri, I think Dr. Giuliano, if if my memory is correct, uh, she stood up and said, you know, you can just put your phone next to the eye and get a similar image. Like, uh, have you tried it without the adapter? And there's kind of a pregnant pause and a little bit of laughter in the audience. And uh, the presenter is like, "Uh, no, I, I have not tried that technique. And ever since that comment, which maybe five years ago, I've just been trying to apply them on my own. And I'd say for about four years, up until this past year, it's been entirely just DIY, do-it-yourself experimentation without any uh, research or the literature, because it, it really, there might be two or three articles uh, written within the journal that I study most, veterinary ophthalmology, but I hadn't tapped into the human side of things. So only recently have I actually looked into, you know, like the mechanics of how it works and the different adapters. And then it's, it's just kind of exploded. So I am very much like a, a device geek now, uh, <laughs> because as soon as something new comes out, like the latest model of an iPhone, I'm interested in what it can do. And I should also credit an ophthalmologist that has been doing this a lot longer than, than I have. And his name is Tim Knott is in the UK. And the website I should reference, I think is called uh, phonioscopy or iPhonioscopy. So a little play on the word, but he's been developing, again, kind of a DIY approach without necessarily you know, drawing on human literature, just his own experiences of how to image the front of the eye, the back of the eye, or the, you know, the anterior segment or the posterior segment with various models of smartphones and comparing the results between them uh, with little discussions between like uh, we have a dual lens in the rear facing camera for the smartphone versus the single lens of a previous model and comparing the the distance between the the lens and the the light source and how these relate to the image. His website, uh, which has been temporarily taken down, or at least as of the, the time that I submitted the article in August, was probably the the best tutorial that I had uh, leading up to writing that article. And I I leaned on it quite a bit. Um, So credit to Dr. Knott. Oh, I appreciate that. And and hopefully that website will be back up sooner than later. So, you know, other people can access it. But I want to 
kind of stop here a little bit for just a second because um, for those that have have referenced the article and read it already, specifically in the article, you don't talk about the adapters, right? Because it's like you said, at this point, you're kind of in a learning mode. You don't want to come off as an expert with these. You're you're more just like a, a techie and you're into getting these new devices, checking them all out. But so I want to just kind of clear up a little bit when we talk about these adapters, what exactly we're talking about. And I know you can't go into specifics as an expert, but I just want to say a little bit about what are these adapters exactly in case people haven't come across them? Yeah, um, I like that you qualify as an expert because I I haven't uh, developed these adapters personally, and some are FDA approved, some are not. And my approach to the use of adapters has been to try and I use them as many as I can get my hands on. But when I present these topics in a CE environment, continuing education at, at local or national conferences, I don't think that advertising a $500 or $1,000 product attaching to the phone is the most accessible way for veterinarians or students to just start employing these techniques straight away. So if there are techniques that can be done to get quality image without the adapter, I lean on that for educational purposes first ahead of using the adapters. Okay. But because I'm also interested in building an archive of uh, representative photos of the, the retina or the cornea, just in general for teaching purposes, I, I will use various adapters to increase the quality of the image, but I don't think that they're absolutely necessary. So what do they do? So if we, we should split it up into the, the front of the eye and the back of the eye, The majority of the attention in the human side has been on the the back of the eye, imaging the the fundus. So there's two ways to image the fundus. It's either through a direct technique or indirect technique. Direct meaning we are just leaning on the optics of the phone directly to image straight through the lens into a magnified view of the fundus. The DI, uh, uh, D-I, I is uh, one of the products that has been published in the human side the most, one article in veterinary side. It is a tool that uh, connects to the rear-facing camera and makes the light source aligned as, as closely to the camera lens as possible so that the term coaxial is, is used. That means that Light is entering through the pupil imaging the fundus at about the same axis and orientation as the camera lens without interfering with the camera lens's image. This would be especially important for cameras, and you can just look on the back of your phone, that have a wider difference between the LED flash and the the camera. So not all smartphones require that. So there are certain iPhone models for instance, I use the iPhone 10 Max that actually has a fairly coaxial distance between the LED and the wide-angle lens, the most corner-facing lens of the rear-facing camera. Relative to, say, the iPhone 8 Plus, my previous phone, has a really wide difference between the wide-angle lens and the LED so that if you use that light, you get a high degree of shadowing as light is interfered uh, or blocked by the, the iris rather than going straight through the pupil to capture an image. 
So that is the, I'd say the most commonly published adapter refers to various forms of direct fundoscopy. I also talk about methods for just indirect ophthalmoscopy. That doesn't require an adapter, but it requires a condensing lens, which inverts and transposes the, the image, which just, you know, in lay terms, flips it upside down and backwards. It's just a conventional technique we had learned to, in our basic physical exam, regardless of whether or not the phone is involved, uh, where we use a light source you know, near our eye and bring a condensing lens in front of the patient's eye. And by aligning our eye with the patient's eye on the lens, we can get this image. The benefit of that technique is that you get a much wider view. And it is the preferred technique in veterinary ophthalmology. The unfortunate thing is that it's a little bit more technically challenging to learn up front. There are fewer adapters to actually make that happen. So I lecture on the basic technique of using your phone to accomplish indirect ophthalmoscopy. And to be determined, I would say, is the, you know, the result of these lectures and the accessibility because I haven't incorporated into our curriculum at Texas A&M and the, the follow-up. It's still early to see if uh, veterinarians are using these techniques and incorporating into their medical record or their practice in a valuable way. But um, that's kind of a, a to-be-determined direction for smartphone fundoscopy, at least, is the, the indirect approach. That's a great point. And I have a follow-up question about that. But before I ask you, I want to kind of cover a couple things too, because when it comes to getting these images and, and your article talks about getting good imagery during these examinations, there's some terminology that I don't know, I, I'm not 100% tech savvy. And I know I hear a lot of these terms. But in terms of getting you know successful images, we do kind of want to have a certain things in ratio, right? And so can you talk a little bit about those aspects of resolution and pixels? And I think you even use a term about 4k image, give me a quick dummies guide to smartphones and imagery. That is a great question. Because I've asked the same thing myself because uh, you you see these terms on the marketing side of cameras, TVs, videos. So what does 4K resolution mean? What is 1080p? What is the definition of high resolution? And you know how does that relate to a camera that we're buying? So 15, 20 years ago when we had point-and-shoot cameras, you know, everything was rated against uh, megapixels. Uh, smartphone still point-and-shoot cameras, the convention is to refer to megapixels, 12 megapixels being on the high end, mega referring to a million. So it refers to pixels, and it's a product of the horizontal and vertical pixel dimensions. So if you ever download or look at a photo on your computer and look at the photo data imagery or the statistics or metrics on the side, the metadata, Currently, for a 12 megapixel photo, you'll see dimensions listed as roughly 4,000 by 3,000 pixels. And that product equates to roughly 12 million pixels. That is as blurry as the conventions happen to be. The same thing as 4K. So 12 megapixel and 4K, roughly the same thing. We just use 4K. Uh, just as a convention to describe video and television screens, really as a, uh, as a point of just marketing. Um, but the, the terminology has gotten really confusing. 
I don't know if that helps clear things up, but that's how I am understanding things currently. Well, I do think it helps because just kind of knowing that sometimes the terminology is as much marketing as it is actually factual and knowing, you know, what the qualities are, what would you say is like the minimum uh, for good imaging that a person would want to know that their phone was capable of? That's another good question. So the minimum depends on the purpose. So if we're publishing, so if you have something that you want to be posted online and you want the image to show up as you intended it to you know, represent an eye, standard convention used to be 70 um, pixels per inch. And you can do the math just by taking horizontal or vertical and then just dividing that number. So we just talked about roughly 4,000 by 3,000 for a 12 megapixel image. Divide that by 70 and we have a very, very large image. The standard has changed more recently where 300 pixels per inch has become a more accepted standard for what is publishable. So still that our iPhone images can be viewed without perceiving the individual pixelation, meaning these little square blocks at, I think the math checks out uh, roughly 13 by 10 inches for a a 4,000 by 3,000 12 megapixel image or 4K image. And that's pretty large. So the next user topic would be you know, what are you actually capturing at that size? And how much can you zoom in and enlarge to look at things that might be uh, within that image? So if we're looking for a, like a microscopic vessel in the cornea or in the retina, it would help the examiner out if they could enlarge the image by a factor of two or four. That's where increased resolution helps us find pathologies more readily and where the technique helps a little bit. So it's it's always a, a moving target and there's no set answer for like, you need this many megapixels. I will say that any smartphone will give you an adequate, uh, has the capability, any modern smartphone, let's say from the, you know, the model iPhone 4 and uh, going forward, uh, which most people have, uh, and you know whatever the Android equivalent is, will give you representations of pathology using just basic techniques, you know, outlined in the uh, the August article. I think that that really helps a lot because it's it's basically to say you pretty much probably have this tool in your pocket. The the newer phones, obviously, the better, and and it sounds like there's some variation based on light and camera angles. But you know, it really seems accessible, like you said, for for pretty much anybody within the clinic. And it makes me wonder when you when you're talking about these examinations and utilizing just the phone kind of moving away from adapters and just utilizing your phone are you are you doing this with all of your exams and are you using the imaging in all portions of the examination or are you only utilizing it in the fundic portion i try uh, as a habit to image most of what i see and it's um, it depends on the the busyness of the the day because Creating images creates a new problem of organizing and storing said images. So to answer your question, what do I image everything? So uh, the front of the eye, the back of the eye, and as often as I can. There are limitations to imaging the back of the eye that slow me down more often than the front of the eye, and that is the, the pupil and 
any light obscuring pathology between the front of the eye and the back of the eye. So if we have corneal disease, lens disease, then we're going to have a more difficult time imaging the retina. And it's also uh, really helpful if we're able to dilate the pupil. So um, a really constricted pupil will limit our ability to, to image the, the back of the eye. So we'll need to pharmacologically dilate. We use tropicamide and then we wait 20 to 30 minutes. And in the academic setting, clients don't always uh, have the, the patient's wherewithal to, to move through our our uh, slow but thorough process of student evaluation, resident evaluation, and faculty evaluation, and then wait for um, you know our um, our staged fundus photography session. But I can almost always snap an image uh, with um, a smartphone or another camera of the front of the eye, and um, that has been the most useful and shareable technique from the training veterinarians or future veterinarian side of things that you know, we are we are diagnosing a lot of diseases in the front of the eye and the phone can help it doesn't just because we can't as quickly image the back of the eye isn't necessarily a limitation but it's a huge help to achieve the magnification that the smartphone can give you uh, with simple techniques and either incorporate that into the medical record for your own purposes or to share it with a client and uh, just demonstrate a pathology that they might might not have been able to see. Uh, For instance, like a really small eyelash that's scratching the surface of the eye or a really subtle change in the color of the iris that might be due to a, a blood vessel abnormality. Uh, that's where I think that this is most powerful in connecting the dots uh, and in just improving medicine in general. And that's where I use the the smartphone most often, just to give students and clients that uh, that connection, that kind of aha moment that you know they can see things that they thought that they couldn't before, that they thought that were limited to the examination with the handheld slit lamp microscope. I approach it from all angles. I could say. Well, and, and I guess to that point is. Do you feel like this smartphone examination is replacing direct fundoscopy with an ophthalmoscope, or are you still doing both? No, I don't think it's replacing because, sadly, I don't think it's outside of the the discipline of veterinary ophthalmology as a specialty. I think that you'll find, if you surveyed veterinarians in general, the clinical skill of looking in the back of the eye is is challenging, uh, to say the least. Uh, it doesn't receive a lot of attention in the literature and the veterinary side, but on the human side, there's big debate. You know, Should we even train fundoscopy skills to medical trainees? Is it worth the time? Because it might require too much time that conventional curricula would allow for. So there's just too much to unpack in that uh, skill by itself. But you raise a good point. I think the another way of asking the question would be, will it replace? And I sure. think that there's really good potential for it to replace direct ophthalmoscopy, but that opens up uh, kind of Pandora's box as far as what place does a smartphone have in veterinary medicine and is the technology ahead of the regulations for data storage and privacy, uh, which is regulated by HIPAA on the human side. So 
if you, you know, purchase a, an accessory attachment like the DI to look at the fundus, a part of DI's selling point is that it, I think it advertises software that is also HIPAA compliant to protect uh, the client's privacy, the patient's privacy. Whereas um, we follow the general AVMA guidelines for veterinary medical ethics, but we haven't yet gotten to the point of incorporating smartphone imaging into those guidelines and to state jurisprudence and privacy laws. So that's, you know, that's a kind of a, a tricky future frontier to negotiate. But I do think that the smartphone has a really strong potential to replace the direct ophthalmoscope as a medical device. And that might sound radical to some people in the field, but uh, to me and in my experience, I find students having an easier time picking up their phone and bringing it to the eye and walking away with a positive experience than the direct ophthalmoscope. And there's literature to support that assertion and on the human side. Objectively, that is, that is a fact for human medical training programs that uh, for direct op or fundoscopy specifically, smartphone techniques have outperformed direct ophthalmoscopes. And, okay, you know, you've brought this up now a couple times and, and I want to get to it is, is how are those images getting to the patient record on that very point of where with compliance issues and, and no real clear guidelines, you know, it sounds like the images are taken for the most part on your personal phone. How, how is that being handled? Is there a clinic phone and, and how is it transferred? You know, walk me through that process a little bit. My preference without, this is something that I should, you know, tread lightly over because I, I believe I am maintaining anonymity and I'm following AVMA and Texas uh, veterinary you know, state law guidelines, but I haven't seen specific language written on this, on this topic to answer that question with, like, with authority. So I'll tell you what I do. I try to use a dedicated smartphone on the clinic that is only used for acquiring images. So uh, one thing that I'd recommend if you know, just for the simplicity standpoint of not mixing personal with professional is uh, if you are inclined to purchase a medical device, a smartphone is great, specifically used for medical imaging or other intended purposes, but it's much easier and safer to manage the images when they are a standalone rather than from your personal pets or from your personal life. So having a standalone phone connected to your preferred medical record management system is the way that I would recommend. So yeah, it's, again, tough to give general guidelines because there are still practices. Uh, it's still common to have paper records uh, where it'd be difficult to include uh, digital images into, into that record. You have to create kind of a separate filing system. Other medical software in veterinary medicine is um, more photo ready, I'd say. Uh, Texas A&M has a homegrown software system that does allow incorporation for private photographs. Um, so we, we take advantage of that from time to time. But for the most part, we manage an independent photo archive um, that's just password protected. Okay. So there, I mean, seems like there's a couple reasonable ways to go about it, but again, it, there's going to be more coming down the pipeline on this. I think, like you said, as it becomes 
more of an everyday practice. And, and that's exactly what we're trying to do here with this article in the podcast, because it, it, it really, truly, it sounds like it can be a pretty, pretty much a huge asset. And so kind of getting back to those techniques and imagery, just kind of wanted to ask a, a little bit, because you do discuss the direct and indirect fundoscopy. And what are the indications and uh, the differentiations of the two approaches when you're using the smartphone? All right. So indications. Um, it's uh, it's two ways to look at look at the question of indications, uh, and we'll start out with just the indication of performing a, a fundoscopic examination in general, and that's just the the physical examination. So it's a uh, it's recommended just in general when you're doing a physical examination on a, uh, any pet, dog, cat, horse that. Uh, looking at the back of the eye, however you do it with a smartphone or with traditional equipment is just generally recommended. If when we're talking about, uh, again, just staying on physical examination independent of disease, uh, you have to pick direct versus indirect. Um, Most veterinarians feel more comfortable with the direct uh, technique because the learning curve is shallower and uh, you can see something. So we tick the box. I have looked in the back of the eye, but unfortunately, what we see with the direct ophthalmoscope is just extremely magnified. And as far as the entire area of the, the fundus of the back of the eye, we might see you know, uh, an optic nerve, half of an optic nerve at a time. So if you're going to do a thorough examination, and the goal is to see 100% of what's back there, top, bottom, left, and right, You'd have to use this spotlight pattern, just moving left, right, up, down. And it's a really difficult technique to using a traditional direct ophthalmoscope to, to feel comfortable that you've looked at the entire back of the eye, which is why we typically encourage the indirect techniques, because with a condensing lens and a light source, we can view as little as a third of the back of the eye, much as two thirds if we change our lenses for a wider field of view. Now, when we move into comparing direct versus indirect with the smartphone, if you have a direct smartphone technique without an accessory attachment, we're just uh, dimming the light slightly for the comfort of the patient. Ideally, we have a dilated pupil. The amount of fundus that you can see is actually a little bit wider than you can with the direct ophthalmoscope. I say a little bit, but it's actually quite a bit more. So you know, these terms are a little esoteric you know, as far as like the degrees and the field of view that you have. Uh, you'd see something approximately about five degrees uh, as an arc width field of view with a direct ophthalmoscope, whereas you might get as much as 20 degrees at a time. So yeah, maybe uh, coming close to you know, 10% of the fundus at one time with the direct technique uh, with the smartphone, uh, roughly 10 to 20% of the fundus. So we can see the same indirect view if we use the smartphone to record an image of the, of the back of the eye. That's just your typical physical examination, choosing one or the other. And I think it'll be interesting to see if as these techniques, as we get the word out that the smartphone can be used to image the back of the eye, what the user experience is and um, if it helps out with making that physical examination skill seem more accessible. When it comes to indications from a disease standpoint, it usually comes down to what the client is presenting to you for information with their 
pets. Um, so why are they walking in the door? A common complaint uh, that would prompt uh, a need to look at the back of the eye would be any disturbance of vision or any change of color within the eye. So if we have a red eye complaint, it behooves the examiner to, to look into the back of the eye to make sure that a portion of that inflammatory disease is not coming from the retina because that could impact vision if it's not impacted already. Or if we already have vision deficits, you know, um, owner says my dog is having a hard time catching treats, finding treats, walking outside, it's bumping into objects in the home, then it's some, it's a skill that we need to have. So these, that's another interesting direction that this could take is that it might allow us to diagnose. And even if we're not diagnosing from the general practice veterinarian level, this is kind of a segue into another great benefit of smartphone ophthalmoscopy. So whether you're imaging the front of the eye or the back of the eye, you know, the major improvement here relative to traditional techniques is that we are capturing images. So we now have a short recording. And even if you don't know what you're looking at, you can share it now. Whereas it's just a reiterates the picture or video is worth a thousand words you know, sentiment. You can share it with someone who might know what it looks like. So it might fit a pattern that is characteristic of a specific disease. And now in our pockets, we have a, a way of capturing that and sending it and sharing it to, uh, with someone else. And that is pretty incredible. It's just, you know, the question is, uh, how do we do it in a way that's uh, uh, manageable, responsible, and protects privacy and uh, you know, adheres to uh, consulting guidelines set by the AVMA and uh, local uh, state legislatures or uh, jurisprudence. Yeah, but I mean, you're absolutely right. It's such an invaluable tool to be able to crowdsource in in ways, um, you know, and I, I have worked in various areas where you do kind of get these images of like, hey, this is my pet's eye. What am I looking at? And, uh, Absolutely. No idea is my answer. But, you know, it's really it is really cool to be able to to crowdsource the experts, like you said. And frankly, I, I think more of us would be crowdsourcing toward you. But it's it's wonderful. You know, like you said, you have an image of it. You can share it and say, hey, what am I looking at and get some help? It's wonderful. And I think it actually is notable on that topic to say you're actually using video mode, correct? When you're doing this imaging? Yeah. So you asked a question that I kind of rambled on about earlier about, you know, the convention of 4K megapixels, you know, the the tech language. The techniques that I usually recommend, the selling point of video over photo is that if you have, quote unquote, a a 4K video resolution, you're stacking these, you know, 4,000 by 3,000 megapixel, or excuse me, pixelated images on top of one another in this continuous video. And, you know, retrospectively, you know, maybe in depending on what video setting that you have, you know, I, I recommend going into the settings mode of your um, your smartphone and increasing the frame rate. Uh, standard frame rates are 30 or 60 frames per second. You can go all the way up to 240 frames per second with slow motion. And that gives you 240 frames in a second that you can choose from. So those are 240, just simplistically, individual photographs that you can scan through just scrolling through your video and then finding the most representative single image or multiple images to either incorporate in your record or share with someone else. And that is an incredible tool to have. So you know, radiologists are doing this all the time with short loops of ultrasound segments. And it's a, it's a, it's a great way of reviewing and capturing the most representative part of a patient's examination or the pathology that you find. Uh, the problem it creates 
is um, is storage issues. So uh, the way that I handle this is I'll I'll take a little video loop, capture the still frame from that video loop, and then discard the video for maintaining storage on the on the camera for future images. Yeah, that makes sense. I get that gets eaten up quickly. I'm sort of laughing to myself just at the moment because I'm actually like the worst ophthalmic patient and thinking how how much how so? it would have done me a lot of good in the past if if that could have been the case because you know when when you are trying to get a good image of the eye inevitably there is like a blink or a movement at, at that very oh, second exactly. so taking a video make it just seems like it makes so much sense and you want to be like duh you know but it, it's a wonderful tip because like you said you're getting over 200 images a second and as someone who personally does not thrive in, at the ophthalmologist when i have to go i i like um less is more for sure with me so i'm That's sort a great of laughing point. From to the, myself from the patient or client if you're going to your own ophthalmologist i think uh less is more as far as time spent underneath the uh, you know a light source or stuck in one immobile position it's not a comfortable thing no one likes having their their eyes looked at for a long period of time. So that's a great point. That, uh, yeah, well, and as your vet tech, right, who's restraining <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> very still and without cutting blood flow off to the brain, <laughs> we want you to be quick in and out, right? It, it's all yeah, good yeah. things. It, this definitely helps. <laughs> <laughs> it's so true. Now, you know, it leaves me kind of wondering is is kind of the when does this not work, right? Are there certain times or conditions that you are not going to get imaging uh, to work at all? The times I struggle most is with uh, direct fundoscopy. The camera settings that are built into smartphone software are very much programmed for automatic modes. Uh, it's tough to make these settings manual to deal with the problems that these the automated settings can present. So what I mean is that if you're trying to look at the, the retina of a dog that has, let's just say an older dog. So any dog beyond the age of seven will start to develop a noticeable clouding of their lens called senile nuclear sclerosis. Uh, basically the same condition that people have when they need bifocals at the age of roughly 40. Your lens becomes dense enough that it can become optically apparent and scatter light a little bit. The smartphone uh, recognizes that as an object to focus on rather than a perfect transparency to just move past and ignore. So the, if you have any lens opacity, a small cataract or a dense lens in an older patient, the direct technique will struggle much more than the indirect technique. And it's where that's a circumstance where having the skill of the indirect technique will still allow you to image what you need or to evaluate what you need, where the direct fundoscopy technique specifically might let you down. Practically speaking, I think that for what we need to capture in veterinary medicine, we are more often finding diseases on the surface of the eye that need therapy. So I, I don't think that it's a limitation that is a, is a major obstacle for the diseases that we're treating regularly. This would be something you know, more concerning on the human side where we're more often diagnosing or where physicians are more often diagnosing uh, diseases of the, the macula the fovea, the, the optic nerve. We either don't have some of those uh, anatomic regions to worry about diseases, or they're just not happening nearly as frequently. So it's not too much of a problem to, to be limited by those problems because uh, they, those diseases present to us infrequently that we would need to capture. Or not, I, sh I shouldn't say infrequently, but 
less frequently than the problems of, say, the, the surface of the eye. And I'm talking about pugs, shih tzus, uh, our brachycephalic dogs that uh, run into corneal disease more often than retinal disease. So um, we can still use these, these tips and tricks in a valuable way. Plum's Veterinary Drugs is the must-have veterinary drug resource. With Plum's Veterinary Drugs, your number one source for drug information can always be right at your fingertips, on your phone, your tablet, or your desktop, wherever you need it. To learn more and subscribe, visit plumsveterinarydrugs.com. Okay, that, you know, brings me to one of my favorite sections, keep it brief, uh, but not a lot of pressure here to keep it very brief because we rarely do, but it, it want, I kind of would like you to summarize a little bit of how you talk about ocular health with your clients and how you incorporate the images that you take. Yeah, that's, that's where this is most fun. Um, it doesn't resonate until you can see it right? Uh, yeah. No matter who you are. So uh, from whatever side of the conversation you're on, it's really helpful to uh, speak in common terms. So if um, we're talking about uh, microscopic disease, bringing that to an owner's attention that uh, is readily understandable and simply just magnifying an image of the cornea or, the, or showing them uh, what's happening in the back of the eye, it really allows for buy-in. So it helps owners believe that there is a problem where it might have been an uncertainty or they're seeking a second opinion. If you can demonstrate that problem in real time immediately without, you know, any sort of image processing or interpretation. So for instance, if you take a chest x-ray, you you need to shop out that opinion sometimes to a a radiologist and the turnaround time might be several hours to several days. In, in the exam room, you can snap a photo, enlarge that photo, and just sit next to the client and talk about the diseases that their pet might have. I feel the same way when it comes to training future veterinarians, that if you can make the examination more accessible, it becomes a lot more fun, and the learning is enhanced in a, a really powerful way that it becomes a, a can-do skill uh, rather than an opinion that needs to be shopped out later on in practice. I think that ophthalmology is traditionally a, an intimidating discipline um, that yeah. is uh, really hands-off. And this wasn't brief at all, but um, it's, my, it's my favorite thing about it. So it's the... Uh, the most enjoyable part of my job is to connect those dots and to, to share what I'm seeing with uh, people who might be interested to know what I'm seeing. Um, and this, this is one way of doing it. So it's a, it's a lot of fun. You know, I think you're exactly right because the sharing the education, sharing the knowledge, seeing that light bulb moment, like the eyes connect with yeah. exactly what you're trying to explain and then the understanding happen. And when it comes to students, right, you know the ripple effect of that, that you're going to be a good diagnostician. Even if you don't go into ophthalmology strictly, you now have this knowledge. I see you have this knowledge. And when it's for the client, I think there is more value buy-in because they're able to, like you said, visualize their part of 
it's so scary and so unnerving. And I think we forget how disconnected our clients feel because we speak a language um, very fluently yeah. that they don't. And so we go in and we say, oh, it's X, Y, or Z, and, and we just need to do A, B, and C. None of those words make sense, and they can be very scary and very intimidating. And when we can give them, um, at least the clients who show an interest, a visual, tactile connection to what's going on and why it's important, sometimes I think it takes some of the, the fear away because there's the knowledge, right? Uh, lack of knowledge is, is a lot of what drives fear. The fact that you're talking about this and, and the creation of this article and, and getting this topic out there and sharing it with your students, uh, making it really accessible, I think is, is very important. And I'm, and I'm very grateful that you took the time today to have this conversation to talk more about your article. Again, uh, was published in an August 2019 clinicians brief, smartphone technology and clinical ophthalmology. Uh, Dr. Valone, thank you so much. It's wonderful what you're doing, getting the word out, practicing, learning, um, saying, I'm not sure. I don't know. These are new tools. These are new techniques. Come check it out with me and let's learn more about this tool we have in our hands because we're going to help more pets doing it. And at the end of the day, that's what matters the most, isn't it? Yeah, Becky, uh, that really sums it up. And um, I uh, really appreciate uh, the opportunity to talk about it. It was a lot of fun. So thank you for having me. Thanks again to today's guest for joining us and thanks to you for listening. If you enjoyed today's episode, you can find us wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. While you're there, make sure you subscribe, rate, and review. We appreciate if you leave us all the stars. You can listen to podcasts as well on our website at cliniciansbrief.com backslash podcasts. You can find us at facebook.com backslash cliniciansbrief, on Twitter at cliniciansbrief, and on Instagram at clinicians.brief. You can also drop us a line at podcast at briefmedia.com. Clinician's Brief, the podcast, is a brief media production produced by Alexis Ustry, sound by Randall Stupka, hosted by me, Becky Mosser, with special thanks to production assistant Michelle Moncrez.